there. In other words, we want to actually go to people. Don't expect people come, to come to us. Does that make sense? Another one is it encourages mutual service in the priesthood of all believers. In other words, each person is called to this, not just me, not just Kevin or Russ or whoever. Every one of us are called to this mission. It expects mutual responsibility rather than individualism. We are a community. We operate individually, but we actually we do this together. We do this kingdom life together. Okay. Now, follow these last two, though. It declares truth that challenges the reigning plausibility structure. Now, I don't know if you know that language. It's Peter Berger, actually. He's a sociologist. And anybody want to take a stab at what the reigning plausibility structure is? Risky. Huh? Yeah, well, that, that would be a part of it. The reigning plausibility structure is the empire or the idea or worldview that is out there that dominates the way we think about life. Okay. So it declares a truth that challenges that reigning plausibility structure. That's what, are you, you keep repeating me. <laughs> Sorry. It declares the truth of that, that, that we're supposed to be challenging. And then the last one is it nurtures hope and, re and a reimagined future vision or vision of the future. Are you following me? So we speak into the culture that's out there that there is an alternative, and we're supposed to reimagine what that alternative could look like. That's what I'm talking about when I talk about living a prophetic life. And what we find is in the life of Nehemiah, he demonstrates that for us in chapter 5. Now, as I get into the text, uh, let, let me start with this. Uh, you, you've already observed in me that I cry easy. Uh, some people have said things about me that are unkind because I cry easy, but I happen to think it's a gift from God. St. Francis cried easy, and they said he had the gift of tears. Not everybody can cry easy, right? But I cry easy, like at a stoplight, Hallmark commercials. I mean, here, here's, here's the question. What do you think of when you see somebody crying? Now, before you answer, I know there are the joyful, jubilant, hypersensitive cries, right? I do those. It, a few years ago, Robbie and I went to a late movie on Sunday night, which is the best time to go see movies. No one goes out. If you go late, we had the whole theater to ourselves. Robbie and I, four college girls. That was it. And we went to a movie. Now, I know some of you are going to scoff even as soon as I tell you the name of the movie. It's, what's the name of the movie, Carly? What a Girl Wants. <laughs> if you've got to scoff, do it now. <laughs> this is your time. Okay, fine. I, we start the movie. And really, it's a movie about a, a girl that separated from her father. And any girl separated from her father and reunited with her father makes me blubber. And I didn't understand what it was about when I got there, but midway through the movie, I'm doing this. this I'm not exaggerating. I'm doing not like, like I did right here. Like, I'm like this. <laughs> so, needless to say, the college girls in the theater were paying attention more to us than the, than the movie, trying to figure out what is going on with this guy who's just flipping out over here. Since then, my daughter and uh, actually one of her friends, uh, they were scoffing at me and bought me the movie. 
just to make fun of me. And uh, I, this is not an exaggeration. I've watched it twice in the last year. And you know what I do every time I watch it? <laughs> it just happens. In fact, there are betters in this room and in my family that are saying to me right now, we bet that on July 23rd, you will not get past the who giveth this bride before you fall down and cry like a baby. <laughs> my daughter's getting married. Thus, you know, father, daughter, cry. There I am. I'm going down. In fact, I've got pressure now. Everybody's expecting me to cry. If I don't cry, people are going to be mad. <laughs> They're just going to get like, okay. So we have different images in our mind of what happens when we see people crying, right? What happens in your mind when you see, if, imagine a little boy on his, sitting down, holding his knee on a sidewalk with his bike tipped over in the neighbor's yard. What's, what does that mean? What are you thinking when you see somebody do that? Or an elderly woman holding the hand of her, her husband who they've been married 50 years and you realize something's going on and the woman's crying. What comes to your mind? What comes to your mind when you see this little guy? Now, he's probably throwing a fit. Okay, let's forget about him. How about the next guy? This is another little guy. What's going on? What do you think of when you see that picture? Or how about this lady right here? I'm going to tell you what generally comes to mind when you see tears like this is there's something wrong, right? There's something that just isn't right. There's something that's amiss. There's something that isn't balanced or equitable or there's pain in the story somehow. And you look at it and you go, there's something got to be fixed there. Think about Jesus. In John chapter 11, this is at Lazarus' death. He came, saw Martha and Mary crying, and it says, listen to this, he says, he was deeply moved. And then, the very next thing that's said is the shortest verse in the Bible. What is the shortest verse in the Bible? Jesus wept. He cried. And there's a postscript to that particular verse. It says, the onlookers commented, look how, much is he lo look how much he loves him. I, I want to I contend this morning that when you see people cry like that, what you're doing is, is you're seeing um, something is wrong. Something is not right. You surmise that there is something amiss. Uh, you think of Revelation chapter 21, verse 4, the very end of all things, recreation. What does it say? At that time, when everything's made the way it's supposed to be made, there will be no more tears. There will be no more death. No, and it repeats it, no more crying. Interesting. So the converse, if there's tears, that must mean things are not operating the way they're supposed to be operating. Now, that, that, is, that is a segue into the very first verse of our text. Nehemiah chapter 5, if you'll look there with me, it says in chapter, chapter 5, verse 1, if you'll flash that verse, it says, Now the men and their wives raised a great outcry against their Jewish brothers. When there was tears, 
the tears not are identified here, we have to conclude that there is something wrong. The men and the women, it says that there was this great outcry. Now, in Hebrew, that, that could be a lament, perhaps, but really it means that they were bitterly crying. They were, it was a symbol that something was not in place the way it ought to be. So what we find in the text, if we look through, it's very simple what was going on. We'll go ahead and flash to the next text. You can read it if you don't have your Bible. This is Nehemiah 5, 2 through 5. There's three things that they identify. Number one, some were saying we and our sons and daughters are numerous in order for us to eat and stay alive. We must get grain. How could you summarize that? They're hungry. They didn't have enough food. They had come back to Jerusalem to build the wall, and they were starving. Number two, others were saying, we're mortgaging our fields and vineyards and our homes to get grain during the famine. So it wasn't that they were just starving. They didn't have enough money to buy food, so what did they do? They accrued debt. And in accruing debt, put a bur further burden on them. And then the last thing it says, still others were saying, we've had to borrow money to pay the king's taxes on our fields and vineyards, although we are of the same flesh and blood as our countrymen, and though our sons are as good as theirs, yet we have to subject our sons and daughters to slavery. Some of our daughters have already, become, already been enslaved, but we're powerless because our fields and our vineyards belong to others. So there, there's this great outcry, why? Famine in the land, there were numerous people they didn't have enough money, so they accrued loans to pay for the food. And in doing so, they were charged this exorbitant interest and thus become, became enslaved. Are you following me? It's a bad deal. Let, let me unpack really what's going on here. Um, because of overpopulation, it caused a famine and starvation, and the people complained to Nehemiah. Besides the famine, there were too many taxes and an exorbitant interest rate charged by the rich fellow Jews was causing them to sell their children and themselves into slavery. Their creditors were taking their land as payment. Now, I don't know if you do this, but I've actually never really used the word usury. I, I kind of have an idea in my mind what it means, right? Anybody know what usury means? Interest, right. In its most base definition, it simply means interest, but it, a second definition it's exorbitant interest. In other words, it's a load of interest. But I really still didn't get that because I don't use that language. So I did a little bit more looking into the Hebrew and, and really, what was going on? You have to catch this. Hunger accrued the debt, incurred uh, this, this terrible exorbitant uh, debt on their lives. And like in our world here, sometimes when we take a loan out, we have to put something up for collateral, right? If I take a loan, they might make me sign my house as collateral. Well, that's what they were doing. They're they putting their, their, their land up for collateral, the very thing that allowed them to pay the debt. But the things were, things were so bad that they still couldn't pay the debt after they put their land up for collateral. And, and literally what it means is they were, the usury means they were seizing the collateral. This is their tribe. This is the same people that all came and they actually... Uh, put this heavy load on their own brothers and sisters. And instead of saying, no, we'll go ahead and just let you go through with this, they actually took the very means that they had to pay their loan off. And so it's summarized in this one word in the chat. If you'll shoot that verse back up there, or the powerless. This, this verse in chapter 5, verse 5, it says they were powerless. 
Another translation of that text says they were oppressed. The closest thing I can come to uh, of a clear definition of this idea of powerlessness is it is, it is not within their hands to remedy it. In other words, they didn't have it within them to fix the problem. It was not in their hands. They were completely uh, disempowered. They were oppressed. They were suffering injustice by the very hands of their brothers and sisters. It was a difficult situation. What comes to your mind when you hear the word powerless? Kryptonite. That, in its metaphorical sense, is right. <laughs> you can't do anything about your situation. Slavery. Good. I'm sorry? You're out of options, right. Weakness, I'm sorry. It brings hopelessness. What are some of the, the ways that people are oppressed around the globe? And we've heard one, slavery. What are some other ways that people are, are oppressed around the globe? Speak up, please. Corrupt government. Presidents. I'm sorry, I'm, I'm 51, I can't hear very well. War. Natural disasters. Natural disasters. Yeah. yeah, that could actually fall in there. Tell, ask me uh, if you think the people around the Gulf feel powerless in the midst of the situation they're in right now. Can they do anything to fix it? It's out of their hands. They, can't not, they cannot fix it like that. What else? Lack of education. Good. Diseases. How about, have you guys ever heard of the International Justice Mission? If you haven't, you should. Log on to their website and look at what they're doing. They're a, a ministry that is essentially going around the world uh, addressing issues of oppression and injustice. Go ahead and flash this. These are some stats from the, the IJM. This is speaking about injustice around the world right now. The total market value of illicit human tra trafficking is estimated to be in excess of $32 billion. That was from the UN. Each year, more than 2 million children are exploited in the global commercial sex trade. 2 million men, women, and children are held as slaves around the planet. In fact, they have no way to know for sure. I saw some articles this last week that actually pushed that number up to 100 million. One in five women is a victim of rape or attempted rape in her lifetime. More than one million children live in detention, the vast majority awaiting trial for minor offenses. L let me read you just a blurb from their website. This might shock you. More children, women, and men are held in slavery right now than over the course of the entire transatlantic slave trade. Just let that one sink into your mind for a moment. Millions toil in bondage, their work and even their bodies, the property of an owner. The land rights of women are violated on a massive scale worldwide, but with particular ferocity in 
Africa, leaving widows and other, other women in vulnerable positions, unable to care for themselves or their children. Around the world, women suffer the double indignity of rape and seeing their perpetrators face no consequences for crimes or of sexual violence. Often lacking access to their own justice systems and unable to protect themselves or their families from those more powerful, it is overwhelmingly the poor who bear the burden of these abuses. See, we can read this story out of Nehemiah and go, and they, they had it really difficult, but the reality is that is endemic to humanity and is just as prevalent today. In fact, the U.S. finally admitted that they're in the, they're in the cachet of nations that are, that are trying to battle a human trafficking. In, in other words, there's human, human trafficking and slavery in our own land. Does that make you cry? What about locally? Does injustice happen in our city? Powerlessness. How about, how about even personally? And we could, we could drill down and even, even move this to a personal level. What about personal addictions? If you know anybody or have struggled with addiction, in your own life, you realize that that is, uh, should be the, the word that is synonymous with powerlessness. So that's the context. I mean, you, you look at this text, and it's very clear. There was poverty. There was indebtedness. And there was actually human trafficking. They were, they were taking the kids of their tribe, their sons and daughters as slaves, to pay back the debt. Sad stuff. So how do we live a prophetic life? This is where we get into the idea of what Nehemiah did. If you look in your Bibles at the next few verses, verses 6 through 13, in fact, we'll project those for you, or 6 through 8. When I heard their cry, outcry, same word, these charges, I was very angry. Now we have to stop there. The, the word there is a compound word because it speaks of, it's, it's not just like I was upset about this. He was white hot with anger. Nehemiah was incensed that this was happening. He saw it among his own people, and he was infuriated by this. Now, I'm going to say this on the side. Nehemiah understood emotion as a mover. It actually moved him, right? That's important to catch because Nehemiah, we've already been through this. Nehemiah chapter 1, it says, when he looked out and saw that his, the walls of his city in Jerusalem were broken down, what does it say he did? He said he sat down and did what? He cried. Nehemiah was a man that was, was aware of his emotions. In other words, he used his emotions to create movement in his own life, right? But here, here's the problem. In, in our culture, particularly with men, we, we struggle with one thing. Either we're trying to jam our emotions down, right? Or, or we let our emotions dominate us. And this is where Nehemiah captures a beautiful picture of balance. Because he says, I was incensed, I was white hot, but look at verse 7. What happened next? I pondered them in my mind. In other words, he didn't just go get a gun and start, you know, he, he just didn't go crazy. He used it as a motivator. He pondered in his mind what should, be, should happen, and then what did he do? I'm going to tell you this. This is very clear. He spoke. 
He spoke out. If we're to understand the prophetic life, we have to understand we have to open our mouths against injustice. It says, then he accused the nobles and the officials. I told them, you're exacting usury. You're seizing the collateral from our own countrymen. So I called them together in a large meeting to deal with them and said, as far as possible, we have bought back our Jewish brothers who were sold to the Gentiles. Now you're selling your brothers only for them to be sold back to us. They kept quiet because they could find nothing to say. You feel the tension in the story? And all of a sudden, this guy, the leader, the governor, the one who's leading the whole thing, he is just fired up. Thinks in his mind, what should I do? Gathers everybody together, and he speaks out what he should have. He spoke three things. If you'll shoot the next slide up there, this is the text itself. You can look for yourselves. This is what he did. So I continued, what you're doing is not right. Shouldn't you walk in the fear of our God to avoid the reproach of the Gentiles, of our Gentile enemies? I and my brothers and my men are also lending the people money and grain, but let the exacting of the usury stop. Summary, he said, what you're doing is wrong. Do you understand that's part of what you have to do? When you see injustice, you do have to say, that is wrong. And then he said this. This is a summary encapsulation of what he's talking about. He said, not only is it wrong, you're representing God wrong. This is the, that's the missional statement. In other words, if we act in a way that's contrary to the kingdom, what we're doing is we're giving God a bad name among the people. I read this just yesterday. I was reading someone's Facebook, and under... Under political views, they said, I'm a follower of Jesus, but I'm not excited about his fan club. Did you catch that? <laughs> In other words, I, I really like Jesus, but the church, they don't behave like him. If there's anything that I see in the open world out there about Christianity, it has, honestly, very few people are ticked at Jesus. What I find that I... That I engage in most, more than anything when I talk to somebody outside of the faith is deconstruction. Let me explain what I mean by deconstruction. I'm peeling back the layers of what they think about Jesus based upon his people. And they say, well, Christians are all haters. They da-da-da-da. And I go, yeah, I, I agree with you. I peel that back. And Christians are da-da-da. I peel that back. Yeah, me too. I don't like that either. In fact, I've done that, and I'm sorry. I peel another piece back. And after you peel back about five layers, you get to the real Jesus. But what's happened is people are evaluating and making decisions about Jesus based upon our behaviors. And oftentimes, we, we are not a good fan club. And I don't want to pick on us. We try. We, we do try. I think I look across this crowd, and I know all of us really try. But we have to be aware that our actions do speak the way we live does preach. Are you, are you with me? Do you understand that? Even if you don't want it to, it does. Even if you're trying to be passive and stay out of the way, that speaks. So Nehemiah spoke. It's wrong. He said, what you're doing is representing God in a false way. And last thing he says, notice what he says. This is a summary. Stop it. He called them to stop it. You must stop this injustice. You must stop the oppression. You have to. 
So he spoke. He didn't miss any, miss, uh, mince any words. He said that this is the way it has to be. You have to stop. And he was a prophetic voice to his culture. He wasn't, he wasn't acquiescing. He wasn't backing away. It was straightforward. Stop it. Please stop it. Prophetic. Now, I need to take a little aside right now and explain oftentimes when we look at culture and we want to speak, we have to be careful that we don't come off like whiny people. Right? I mean, sometimes I just feel like people that do speak are just whining. They're just complaining all the time. They're just in hypercritical mode. They're, they're well, they become cynical. And all people do is identify what's wrong. And can I explain to you, the prophetic idea in the Old Testament is this. This is a, a theological construct. It's this. Pay attention. Here it is. This is high theology. Just kidding. Pluck up, tear down. Look at that as a, as a, as a column. Plant, build up. Every time there's a prophetic word in the Old Testament, it was pluck up and tear down. In other words, this is wrong, this has to change. But in the prophetic vein of the Old Testament, it was always, but we're going to plant and we're going to rebuild. In other words, this is the criticism, this is the hopeful future. Do not just be whiny people who are negative all the time. In fact, someone who comes to me and says, I'm prophetic, and all they do is complain and, and are criticized, I dismiss them. Because they're not following a biblical pattern. It's interesting, in, in the very first verses of Jeremiah, Jeremiah 2, there's, there's a passage that says, uh, it, it addresses the leaders, and it says, you people, all you're saying is peace, peace, shalom, shalom. That's all there is. And Jeremiah says, there's no shalom. In fact, he even says this. Man, if you look at it, I wish we had time. He says, you people have even forgotten how to blush. Think about that. If they, they were so desensitized to the injustice and the wrong that they'd forgotten how to cry over things that were wrong. I'm going to be honest. I think many of us are in that place where we're just weary or we're, we're just too busy or whatever, and we just forget to be sensitive to the stuff that's going on around us. Interesting, though, if you look at the prophetic vein, it doesn't stop with Jeremiah being critical and challenging the, the, the rulers. If you move forward to Isaiah chapter 52, there's this, there's this passage that talks about the runners are running to declare something. It says, in fact, we sing the song, How beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news that declare something. What do they declare? You guys read your Old Testament. They say this, Our God reigns. Now, you have to catch this. The situation, the circumstances that Jeremiah spoke into were the exact situation and circumstances that Isaiah spoke into. One spoke the critical prophetic challenge, and then one came along and said, even though nothing's changed, I'm going to declare something to you. Our God reigns, and if there aren't people who will run the top of the wall and declare something, that something can be different, it can't be. What we're doing is we're proclaiming that God has a future that's different. Does that make sense? So when we, when we speak, we have to understand, we can't just criticize, we have to... We have to proclaim the alternative hope that's available in the kingdom of God. Nehemiah spoke. Okay, let's go back to the text. Not only did he speak... Oh, by the way, there is, there is a piece here. The, the rulers actually repented. 
It says that they decided, okay, we'll give everything back and we won't charge interest anymore. It's funny, as soon as they say that, Nehemiah says back to them, prove it. Let's make it legal. And so he called them to create a legal document to hold them to their promise, right? And then he says this. He says, if you don't do it, he took his robe and he shook the folds out of it. Do you know what that means in the Old Testament? Have you ever eaten crumbs in bed or anything? Or crackers in bed? I haven't. But if I were to have, what you're doing is you're shaking, if you take the sheet and shake the, the, the crumbs out, you're getting rid of them. And it was a prophetic symbol to the leaders. If you don't fulfill your promise, this is what God's going to do to you. He's going to shake you out of the folds of his garment. It's really powerful, powerful language. It was heavy. They all agreed, and they all uh, confirmed that they would do this. Now, the story changes in chapter, four, or chapter 5, verse 14, because not only did he speak, he actually demonstrated something. Nehemiah modeled an alternative story. He had privileges as the king's governor. In fact, it was the, the governor's privilege to actually have as much food as he wanted and so forth. And this is what he said, and we, uh, we don't have time to go through this in detail, but this is what he said. He said, I'm not even going to take the privileges that I have as the governor. There have been other governors who have. In fact, they've put this heavy burden on the people, but I won't even take the food that's allotted to me as the governor. And it says this in the text. I, again, I, I, I'll just read it to you. He said, furthermore, in verse 17, 150 Jews and officials are at my table, as well as those who come to us from surrounding nations, and they eat with me on my dime. Not only did I take the governmental help that I was allotted, but I paid for this huge feast for the people who were oppressed, and I also invited people who weren't even a part of our tribe to come and eat with me. Now listen to this. Listen to this. That is the picture of hospitality that we have to have as people of God. Can I ask this? When was the last time you had a stranger at your table? When was the last time you ate with somebody you didn't know and like? When was the last time you had somebody at your table that you weren't fully acquainted with and knew what you were getting into? See, our lives preach a story. You've heard St. Francis's quote probably a million times where he says, preach the gospel at all times. When necessary, use words. That quote demonstrates the second part of Nehemiah's picture. Nehemiah did speak, spoke the prophetic voice to the culture, but he also lived it out. He lived out what we would say the gospel in a way he communicated a different story of the kingdom. It was, it was a true countercultural movement. He was living on less so that he could give away to other people. He could have taken tons more. The, the real challenge for us when we talk about living a prophetic life is are we willing to be sensitized to the plight of the less fortunate and oppressed around us? around us, not just here, but around the globe? And are we willing to do something? 
James says, uh, religion that God our Father accepts as pure as this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress. There is this, this social engagement component to our faith. There's a verse that we quote a lot. In fact, there's, if you're old enough, you sang about it. Uh, Matthew 6.33. Seek ye first the kingdom of God. You know the song? And his righteousness and all these other things will be added to you as well. Let, let, me, let me amplify the verse. Seek first his kingdom, his reign. His rule. That's, when it, that's what he's saying when he says, seek the kingdom. That Jesus is king and seek what that means to live under that kingship. And then he says, and his righteousness. Most people don't realize this, but uh, another translation of this exact Greek word is justice. Can I quote the verse for you again? Seek. Long for. Crave the righteous rule and reign of God, his kingdom. And the justice that flows from that kingdom. All, everything else will be added to you. <laughs> All that stuff will be added to you as well. In other words, what it's saying is, if you will commit yourself to live under that reign and follow the king and seek after the justice that flows from that kingship, you don't have to live a grasping, clutching life. You don't have to build everything around you hoarding your resources. You don't have to live cloistered or your life built around security and safety and all those other components that are so American. Man, I tell you, Jesus has called us to something much, much greater, church. And we have to step into it. That's what Nehemiah did. He spoke. He spoke about the injustice, the oppression. He challenged it to be changed, and then he didn't, even, didn't just talk about it. He lived a different story. He stepped into the story of the kingdom, really, and lived it out in a unique way. And, and, and really, Jay, I mean, the thing that you're doing, that's part of that story. That, I don't know if you caught that first song we sang by Tim Hughes, or the second song, but it talked about the idea that we can't just sing Can I get an amen? amen? If we're to be a community that has currency to speak, we must first be a community that sacrificially acts towards the other, that speaks and lives against the inequality and injustices of our world. And I'll tell you why. Because God is a holy and just and loving God. He's holy. He's pure. He is the God of justice, the Bible says, over and over again. And he loves people. That puts us in a place of we're going to seek, if we're going to crave after the kingdom and this justice. If we expect that verse to be alive in us, we have to be those people. I would like you to pray with me.